Father, I thank you for your presence with us. Thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy your presence. And thank you for the power of your name, the power of your word. And Lord, I pray that right now, these words that I share will speak deeply into the hearts and the minds of each and every one of us. Lord, that we will go away richer with a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We can't fail to do that when you teach, Di. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, you know, An- Anzac really is a is a commemoration of service. Yes, Men and women who served their country. Um, yes. And we know that Anzac itself was set up after the First World War, but it's commemorating all of the um, military engagements and so on. And so this morning I want to talk about service too, but quite differently. The service of the king, our service to our king. And by way of introduction, I want to share with you how I sort of put this message together. Because very many years ago, I bought a tiny little book called The Calvary Road by a man called Roy Hessian. And that book had been compiled from a series of presentations given way back in 1947 by a group of mission field leaders who'd been invited to speak at an Easter convention in England. And they were asked to talk about revival on their mission fields. Now, the major lesson that actually emerged from all of these men and women was that revival is actually personal. It's a constant experience of the Christians who say, not my will, but thine be done. It's the way of the cross. So, when we're first saved we surrender our life to the Lordship of Jesus. In other words, we acknowledge that without him we are nothing, that we've messed up our life and we need his love and his compassion to set things right again. We confess our need of a saviour, one to redeem us from the slavery of sin and to bring us into his freedom. In other words, we leave behind the bondage and the slavery of sin that ties us up and ultimately leads to our destruction, and we throw ourselves on the grace and mercy of a loving God who brings us into true freedom. Hallelujah. Now, if I invite him to be my Lord, then I become his slave. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 7. Oh, I haven't got it there, sorry. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22 and 23 says this. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a freeman when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. I'm just going to put that on a bit big. (laughs) Not a non-believer wouldn't like that word slave. No, no, exactly. But we, we become the slave of Jesus. We become the servant of Jesus. Amen. Now, if there's anything certain about unregenerated human nature, it's this. I am number one. My ideas, my desires, my invitation to be <coughs> the boss to myself, my goals, they all take precedence. <coughs> so, how do I reconcile then this apparent contradiction? Jesus accepts my invitation to be my Lord, but I still have the ability to be my own number one. We're all very aware that all of the extreme expressions of that are really ugly and destructive. 
So it's no wonder, really, that the devil does his best to keep us there. Now, another thing we know is that when we do genuinely and honestly give our life to Jesus, we become a brand new creature. So what that passage says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Mm. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the unchanging and unchangeable truth. Mm. A death occurs. A new creation is birthed in our spirit. Our old nature that turned away from God is removed and a new spirit, healed, restored and renewed, is given to us. Praise God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Praise God. And thirdly, we also know that our spirit lives in the casing of a body and soul. And this is where the challenge lies. Our body and our soul are both in the process of being redeemed, in the process of being redeemed, as Paul instructed the Philippians. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purpose. God actually even gives us the desire to do that. Praise the Lord. It is God who gives us the will to do that. And what's more, the process can actually be quite hard. And Paul himself was well aware of all the pitfalls. He knew. He had no illusions about the realities of life, especially the soul life of the mind, the will, and the heart. Now, if you've got your Bible, you might like to turn to Romans 7, because Paul puts it all very, very clearly. He says, We know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, It's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin who lives in me. And it all sounds totally bewildering, but the message is actually very clear. Even someone as devoted to Jesus as Paul was 
understood the realities of life as a servant of Jesus Christ and he struggled constantly to subdue his body and his soul. It's important to understand that this is not a matter of willpower and determination, but Mm. one of total surrender to allow the Spirit of God to do his work. And he's actually just said that to us this morning Mm. through Annette's word. It's just what he said. Remember Philippians 2.13? It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purposes. What's more, Paul willingly confessed that he was able to that what he was able to do was possible only because God's grace and mercy enabled him to do it. Mm-hmm. Day after day, Paul made decisions. He made choices to do certain things and not to do other things. <coughs> and he continued on this track by saying in Colossians 1.29, I strenuously contend with all my energy. Strenuously contend with all my energy. It was hard work. Yes. It was hard work. Yes. He was learning how to live in the spirit rather than letting his body and his soul rule his life. And he admitted that life was extremely difficult at times. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, conflicts on the outside and fears within. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Yes. Conflicts on the outside and fears within. Now, if that's Paul's story. We don't need to feel too tied up because it's ours as well. So, with that as a sort of introduction, we can confirm four things. First of all, you and I are created in the image of God. And he said, it is very good. Secondly, the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells within you and me. Praise God. Woo! Praise the Lord. And then, in the world, we are just like Jesus. That's mind-blowing stuff. That's mind-blowing stuff. And then, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. A somewhat abused verse, I suspect. However, (laughs) the truth, God gives me strength to do what he asks me to do. So, How does all this fit into the picture of being a servant? Well, the clues actually in those four statements, and in particular, this one, in the world we are like Jesus. (coughs) Who was he in the world? Well, in Matthew 20, after James and John had asked for special privileges in heaven, can one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left? He called all his disciples together and he said this. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Mm. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20. If you want to be great, it's the great reversal, if you like. If you want to be up, you've got to be down. Yes. Mm. Amen. 
And there we have it. If we truly want to be like Jesus, we need to know what it means to be a servant. We need to know what it means to be a slave. And there's no better illustration than John chapter 13. Now verse 2 to 5 reads like this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He had that all clear in his mind. He had no doubt whatsoever. He knew. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I wonder if you noticed there's a little word in the English, so. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. Therefore, he deliberately got up to do the lowliest, dirtiest, stinkiest job any servant could ever be asked to do, to wash the filthy feet of 12 men. Now, furthermore... Furthermore, when a person is doing that, they're actually physically in a very vulnerable place. So why did he do it? What was he trying to tell his disciples? Well, Peter, for one, actually had no idea whatever and says, you're not going to do that to me. (laughs) But when we go on to verse 12 to 17, it says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's who I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So, what did they know? Because verse 15 says, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done, and now that you know these things. Now, first of all, what they did know was that Jesus is their teacher and their Lord. He is the one with power and authority. He's their kurios. Jesus is our teacher, our instructor, our master, our ruler, and our owner. Even as he was fully aware of his status with Father, he knew he'd come from God, he knew he was going back to God, He chose willingly to humble himself, even humiliate himself before his disciples. And remember in Matthew 11, 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And I put the next one up a bit too quickly, but never mind. The humbling of himself, the condescension was to serve his disciples and to sanctify them. To sanctify them, to make them holy. He dealt with them very tenderly and very gently. 
he washed and he dried their feet. He did a completed task. And there's a message all in itself. It's a completed task. His actions were an example for the disciples to follow. They were to manifest the same gentle, tender graces of humility in service to other people. We, you and I, are to show the same gentle, tender graces of humility in our service to other people. Now, their, their actions were to be willing, unasked for, and unpaid. <laughs> Servants are not to consider themselves better than their master. Those who stoop and obey, serving others in Jesus' name, are richly blessed. Amen. And this is, this is a beautiful one. In humbling himself, Jesus actually dignified humility. He actually dignified humility. He, the Lord of all, became the bondservant. Now, (coughs) that would have been a particularly challenging time for the disciples. I just wonder what was going through their minds. Especially Judas, because he was there. And he was right in the middle of sorting out Jesus' betrayal. (coughs) And yet he's in the middle of this glorious situation. Now just imagine for a minute if you were, say, a household maid in Buckingham Palace. (laughs) And the Queen came along, put her handbag down, took off her outfit, put on your apron, and got a bowl of water and knelt down and washed your feet. Imagine what that would be like. You'd think she was kooky. I think she'd lost her. <laughs> now multiply that a million times, and that's what Jesus did. But it wasn't somebody who had washed their feet that day. It was 12 stinky men. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Just imagine. It's outrageous. It's totally and absolutely outrageous. But Jesus was teaching the disciples what it meant to follow him. Earlier in his ministry, he talked a little bit about the cost of following him. You know that passage, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Now for you and me, do you know the servant song? Verse 1 of the servant song says, Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I might have the grace to let you be my servant too. That's really powerful. We've got a bit of an issue here because you see some people are really very, very comfortable with other people serving them. (laughs) (laughs) Not too keen on returning it. And then we've got people who are very willing to serve other people and find it extraordinarily difficult to let somebody bless them. Now, whichever way we look at it, somebody misses out. Whichever way we look at it, somebody misses out. The lesson that Jesus was actually imparting to his disciples was a very, very intense and charged lesson. If you will, it was a practical illustration of the parable in Luke 17. Oh, here we go 
Luke 17, from 10, 7 to 10. And I'll just read it to you. This is hard. This is hard stuff. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing and looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come on now, sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, get my dinner ready? Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and then you can go and have something to eat. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. It's tough. Anyone who'd ever heard any of Jesus' teaching that mentioned slaves and servants, I'm going into teacher mode now for a minute, (coughs) would almost certainly have got the message very clearly and would have known the distinction between different servants' roles and status. No doubt a few even scratched their head wondering what earth he was talking about. But Jewish listeners would be very familiar with the law and the requirements regarding slaves. They and any Gentile listeners would also have been very familiar with the status of slaves in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman culture, because it was just a normal part of life. Now, there were some privileged slaves who could even rise to positions of power in a household or business, and at the other end of the scale were the poor wretches that worked in mines and chain gangs, meaning that their lifespan was possibly only days. Now, if if you're old enough, and I think most of you are, you will know the film (laughs) Ben-Hur, and you'll possibly know Spartacus, two of my favourite films of all time, And just very recently there was a film, 12 Years a Slave, about slavery in South America, uh, South, yeah, in the southern states of the USA. And sadly, there are still thousands of people living in slavery through the world today. Just. Now, in the Jewish Old Testament, there were two types of slaves. And if you want to go looking for details, it's Deuteronomy chapter 15 and Exodus chapter 21. It'll lay them out for you. First of all, there were hired slaves who were paid some wages. Not a great deal, but they had some kind of payment. They had a few rights and a slight level of appeal from time to time. And then there were... Could you tell... Deuteronomy chapter 15 and Exodus chapter 21. Bond servants who had no wages, no rights, and no access to any kind of appeal whatsoever. Now, interestingly, in the law, the Jews were allowed to take the first sort of slave, but they were never allowed to take fellow Jews as bond servants. Interesting. Now, <clears throat> if we go back then to Philippians 2.7, it's talking about Jesus and a bond servant. The Amplified Translation of Philippians 2.7 says he emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and rightful dignity. That's an amplification of he laid down his life. (laughs) (coughs) Where do I get to? But assuming the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man, he became completely human. And the message says, think of yourself the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. 
he had equal status with God but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity, took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death, a crucifixion. That's the message translation. And here's the scandalous truth of it. The creator took on the form of his created being, humbled himself to obey Father by suffering ignominious insult, rejection and hatred, all because he chose to pay the penalty for that very wickedness. And the fearsome challenge of it, if I actually (coughs) want to be like Jesus, then Philippians 2.7 has to be a picture of me too. Di, could you repeat what's that? Take off the four Should you start? Can you repeat that again? I can. Sorry. The creator took on the form of his created being, of his creature. And he humbled himself to obey Father by suffering ignominious insult, rejection, and hatred, all because he was willing to pay the penalty for that very wickedness. And if I want to be like Jesus, I have to make sure I don't claim special privileges. I have to live a selfless, obedient life Mm -hmm. and die a selfless, obedient death. After all, that's what the great commandment is. Love God with everything I am and everything I have. And express that love to other people. I've already mentioned that the bond servant had absolutely no rights whatever. Jesus made himself a bond servant. Every aspect of his life lay in the hands of Father. He is our model. Jesus is our curios. He is our Lord now. The bond servant lives and breathes absolute obedience. This is what Jesus did during his earthly life. John 5. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Oh, God, I wish I could pray that prayer in honesty. Now, the parable in Luke 17 that I read out a little while ago shows us five different aspects of the bond servant. And pain keeps coming, darlings. I'm sorry, but there's even more. First of all, we must be willing to bear multiple tasks and burdens without results. Sorry, without respite. (laughs) 
<laughs> finish one task and move straight on to another one. But he came in from the from the field and he immediately had to get his boss's dinner. No gap in between. Just go straight from one to the other. He must be willing not to be thanked. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Maybe you could do something anonymously and maybe the person or people will simply take it for granted. (sighs) He must be willing not to be resentful. Ouch! (laughs) Or accuse his Lord of selfishness. You know, in the workplace, with your children at home, or maybe in a church setting, if I'm asked to do a certain task or take on a duty, will I be thinking to myself, why can't you do that yourself? Why is he always expecting us to do that? It's Does it seem hard and forbidding this way down? 
Be assured, it is the only way up. It's the way in which the Lord Jesus reached the throne. And it is the way by which we too reach the place of spiritual power and authority and fruitfulness. Those who tread this path are radiant, happy souls overflowing with the life of their Lord. They have found that he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. A fact that applies not only to Jesus but to them as well. <coughs> oh, I ahead of myself. The Lord Jesus did not take upon himself the form of a bondservant merely to give us an example but that he might die for those very sins upon the cross and open a fountain in his precious blood where they can all be washed away. Now the conclusion to this message is that we who call Jesus our Lord and Saviour are to obey him as bond servants. But you know what? God just can't help himself. (laughs) He just can't stop being loving and gracious. So listen to this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be complete in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his <coughs> friends. And here's the crunch. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now notice what he did not say. He didn't say, okay, boys and girls, now you've given me your heart, we're all chums, okay. He said, if you keep my commandments, if you love people the way I love them, if you humble yourself to serve, then you are my friends, then Father and I will share our life with you, then the Holy Spirit will walk with you and guide you every day. There's something really reverent about it. Something gloriously mysterious in our friendship with our Saviour. There's both love and fear, not cringing terror, but awesome worship and surrender to his holiness and glory. Our love for our Saviour Jesus is a beautiful combination of worshipful adoration and, think back to the film of the shack, Skipping over the water together. Remember that scene where Jesus and Matt are just skipping over the water? It's beautiful. And as the Westminster Shorter Confession says, man's chief aim is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Mm. 
This is a powerful word. It's a challenging word. But Lord, we also know that your love is powerful. That your love is all powerful. And Father, I pray that as we ponder these words, as we spend time with you, that the truth and the depth of these words will go into the very core of our being. Lord, that we can you and worship you and enjoy that friendship with you that you offer, that you offer so willingly and so freely. Lord, change our hearts, tune our hearts to you. It's only through you and through your spirit that we can come anywhere near to all of us, Lord. And so I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name.